Oh, let's love Jesus. He's here today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You are so mighty. You are so mighty. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It always is. Sometimes it's just a little better than others. And this, is, uh, this has been a great, great meeting. And I'm not, that's not just verbiage. It's not hyperbole. It's, this is really a tremendous meeting. I'm going to give you some of the sweetest words in Pentecost right now. You may be seated. Um, great meetings like this, uh, they don't just happen. And uh, when you stop to contemplate what causes some meetings to just kind of stand out and, and be so effective, uh, probably thousands literally of contributing factors go into it. Only God knows. But I would have to say the number one thing, the number one thing, is the um, intensity and, if I can use the word, when you're dealing with human beings, but the purity of spirit and desire on the part of the hosts, the host church, the people, that really just simply put are deeply desirous of whatever God wants. And, and agendas are set aside other than God. Whatever your agenda is, that's what we want. And I think that more than any other factor goes into making a uh, setting like this um, able to take place and happen like it's happened. Uh, and uh, when I think of Brother Urshan's message, those of you that have heard it, that's profound. That's profound. And uh, I'm just telling you, I'm of the tribe. The greatest days of the one God, Jesus' name, apostolic church, are ahead of us. They're not behind us. They're ahead of us. They're ahead of us. It's the greatest days are ahead of us. And so for those that are saying, but you don't, don't you realize what's happening and what this, these folks are doing and those folks are doing? Well, these folks and those folks have always been doing that kind of stuff. That's no new thing under the sun. That's, you, you face that. All you got to do is read Second Peter. All you got to do is read Paul's writings. You got to read Jude. It's, this is no new thing. But God, his whole nature, even from creation, he didn't start the day with the morning. He starts a day with the evening. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. He ends a day when the sun comes up. That's Bible. That's Bible. Meaning, I don't mean when the sun goes down. That's, that's uh, we figured if the sun comes up, that's the beginning of a new day. 
and that's not the way God works. He works just the opposite. He saves the best for last. He always has. He always will. He always will. And I don't think the church in this world is any exception. There's no telling what we're going to see before we get out of here. Good and bad, but I'm ready for the good, and so is God. He wants to do good things. So thank you for that message, Brother Urshan, and then Brother Bo. That was tremendous. That, that was absolutely tremendous. That was excellent. And... Um, you just kept throwing so much stuff out there, and I just, I'm munching on one thing, and then here comes some more, and you're just, wow. And then Brother Bass, my goodness. It only takes four people to throw somebody in a pit, but you take, you know, it'll take 30 people to get them out. That's really and the whole message was just utterly profound. And then Cody Marks was Cody Marks. That's why we love Cody Marks. God bless him. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I read one time a statement of Jonathan Swift. He's the one that wrote uh, Gulliver's Travels. He said, "'Twas a brave man what first ate an oyster." And I believe that. Brave or something. But anyway, uh, I, I'm not saying I'm a brave man, but it's a brave man to... Thank you. You're, good, you're a good man. I, I didn't know I was that thirsty, but I... <laughs> We're going to be here a long time. No, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> Two bottle sermon. I'm not saying I'm a brave man, but it takes a brave man to follow Jesse Parker. <laughs> God, love him. I love Jesse Parker. I remember when we preached our long revival of Bakersfield. He hadn't been in him and Sister Robin hadn't been in all that long, and such special people been in our hearts ever since. And I love this man. And, and uh, this man and this man have had as great an effect on the Northwest as any two human beings have ever had with this gospel. You hear me? That ain't about right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we're thankful. I'm very excited about hearing Brother Ari Prado tonight. I love this man. He, he's special. He's very, very, very special. And so we're excited. Okay. Let's, um, let's stand in, in respect to the word of the Lord. I'll tell you one thing about, and I'm over 60 as well, praise God. <laughs> one thing about being over 60, the days of the pressure of ringing bells is over. You know, I'm not, I'm not, if we ring a bell, that's awesome. But 
Um, I don't feel any pressure on me. Don't you feel any pressure on you? Uh, this is not going to be extended. And my wife says, don't say that. Every time you say it's going to be short, it's worse than ever. So um, I just, I just, I just want to get, I just want to get to the end of this. And um, I just do. Matthew 26. We're going to begin reading at verse number 6. I will read. uh, I'll pick it up a little bit. Matthew 26, verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me, For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my my burial. Please note verse 13. Verily, truly, I say unto you, wheresoever anywhere in this world or age or dispensation, if you please, This gospel shall be preached in the whole world. There shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. And so this day, this prophecy has been fulfilled in our ears. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, who started the business of this should have been sold for 20, for 300 pieces of silver. He started that little Dia tribe. He's upset now because he was a thief and he wasn't going to get his share. So from that moment, Judas went unto the high priest and said unto them, what will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Lord Jesus, we are very, very, very mindful of you. We're asking that you would be here with us and talk to each of us in a special way. You see the service tonight, God, let your manifest glory touch us in our heart and soul and mind and spirit. Do your work through us while we're in this world. Anoint your people mightily. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for your patience. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you, thank you. And thank you, Brother and Sister Mayo and this great church, for all of the kindnesses extended to everyone and to uh, ministers. It's, it's, it's been second to none. Excellent, really.
This woman that Jesus said, you that are picking on her right now, I'm going to see to it that what she did is told and retold and retold down through the centuries and throughout the whole world what she's done. Now, how many things did took place in the ministry of Jesus that were never told, ever? John said if everything was to be told, he didn't think the world itself could contain the books that should be written, should be told. So it's a special thing for this woman to, to make it into that number. And, uh, and yet there's a lot we do not know about her. I know there's speculation as to who this woman is. And, there's, um, and we could speculate as well as anybody else, I guess. But we don't know. We really, really, really do not know who this woman is. Speculate, yes. No for sure, no. How old was she? Was she married? If so, did she have children? Where was she born? Who were her parents? Did she have siblings? What were their names? What other events took place in her life? We know nothing except this single moment. It's the only thing we know about her. And Jesus said, I'll make sure that's told and retold for 20 centuries. In the whole world that hears this gospel, I'll make it a point they hear about this woman. So there's a lot about her life we don't know. We won't know until we get to heaven. I remember reading one time, it is in the autobiographical text of Mark Twain, but he made this statement. He said, what a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none but himself. All day long, every day, the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts not those other things, are his history. His acts and words are merely the visible, thin crust of his world, with its scattered snow summits and its vacant wastes of water, and they are so trifling a part of his bulk, a mere skin enveloping it. The mass of him is hidden, it and its volcanic fires that toss and boil and never rest day and night. These are his life, and they are not written and cannot be written. Every day would make a whole book of 80,000 words. 365 books a year. Biographies are but the clothes and buttons of the man. The biography of the man himself cannot be written. And that's true of every single one of us here. And so, in light of that, again, you think of this woman. All we know is this one 
single defining moment. Just one defining moment of her entire life that Jesus said, that's all you need to know about her and that's all I want you to know about her. But I'll make sure the whole world knows about her. So that's pretty huge just to contemplate that. Now there are many, obviously, figures in the Bible and there's many leaders in the Bible. Many folks that cast long shadows in Scripture. And, uh, and yet when you stop and consider how little, in a sense, we really know about them, and, and that's the reason that even biographies, thick biographies, tomes, if you will, of, of, of human figures in history are um, they're small compared to the person's life. Napoleon made the statement one time, and, and uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, there were more books written about him, except for Jesus Christ, than any other man that ever lived. There were two figures in world history that have received more books written about them than anybody else on earth, except for Jesus, and um, it was Abraham Lincoln and Napoleon Bonaparte. And about 10 years ago, Lincoln pulled out ahead of Bonaparte. More books now written about Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, than him. But before he died, um, Bonaparte made this statement. He said, in my lifetime, there are even now volumes being written about the deeds of my life. And there were volumes, literally. He said, in one generation, they will have condensed my life to a single book. The next generation will have me down to a paragraph. And the fourth generation will fit me into one sentence. Which is mainly, he's a little Frenchman to put his hand right here. And he wasn't even French, he was Corsican. But, but that's the way it works. And so, and so what happens is, it's like a layer of an onion. When you know somebody, you, you have so many little vignettes about that person. The more you know them, a lot of stories, like the stories of I.H. Terry. Those that were closest to him, such as the Bakersfield boys. That's, that's what they call them, the Bakersfield boys. They know so many stories about him. Anybody that's spent any time with him knows a lot of stories about him. And so it's how do you, how do you put someone like I.H. Terry into a defining moment? It's impossible the more you know him. But as time goes by, nature itself inscapulates and, and, and forces people down into smaller and smaller vignettes. And I could stand here and tell you many stories, some of them hilarious stories about Brother Terry and my dealings with him, his dealings with me. But there, to me, when I think of H. Terry... There's one single defining moment that overshadows all else. And I can, I can talk about preaching in that church and him sitting on an altar and grabbing my hands and placing them on his head, which several of us here, we've all felt that. 
and, 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 and the stories and, and being rebuked quite soundly. Remember one time there was a, I had an evangelist and he really wanted to meet I.H. Terry. So we went to meet him and, and we're sitting in there and Brother Terry said, Booker, is he tough? I said, well, I, I don't know. He said, well, we're going to find out. <laughs> and he got started on me. He was very upset at me in those days. And after I stopped, I said, whoa, 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 Brother Terry. And I pulled out $20 out of my pocket. And I said to this evangelist, go eat somewhere and come back in an hour. <laughs> he came back in an hour. I gave him another 10. I said, go find dessert and come back in another hour. Because he wasn't tough enough <laughs> to take what Brother Terry was. But that's not a defining moment. My defining moment was at a general conference. And, and, and he, 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 he grabbed me and walked with me. He said, I want to sit with you tonight. I didn't even hardly know him. So that, anyway, Gordon Mallory was up and he was preaching and people were standing on their feet screaming about believing God for a million people in the Philippines. And there's moments, not all moments are created equal. This was a defining moment for me. I felt somebody pulling on my coat. And I looked down. And I.H. Terry was pulling on my coat, tears streaming down his face. And he said, help me. You gotta help me. And I sat down, I said, what? He said, my wife's been in a coma for seven years, and I can't get her out. He said, that man's up talking about believing God for a million people, and I can't get my wife out of bed. you got to help me. And I wrapped my arms around him. We hugged and wept. So after that day, it didn't matter what he did to me. It, the, the rebukes, the, the, it didn't matter. That moment for me did something that far overshadowed everything else about his life. Just like whatever all else this woman did that moment in the heart of Jesus, it overshadowed everything. That moment overshadowed everything. And can I tell you, not all of this woman's moments were as stellar as that. You know that. When John got to looking around through time and eternity to see if there was anybody worthy to loose the seven seals. He ended up weeping much because there was not one person worthy. Moses wasn't. Elijah wasn't. Elisha wasn't. David wasn't. Paul wasn't. Simon Peter wasn't. There was nobody. He wasn't. And as he's wept, because of out of all the long saga of humankind and their history, not one person 
And the angel said, don't weep. There is one. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and he is worthy. He is worthy. So this defining moment of this woman It's all, it's not, it's not all he knew, but it got him. And uh, that day, that wasn't the only thing that took place. There was a pressure in that hour. Jesus understood he was about to go to Calvary. The disciples, they knew something was up. They couldn't define it. They could feel this certain pressure building. Uh, and, and so... But the, and the woman didn't even know what she was doing. She just, she felt compelled to do what she did. And uh, she didn't even know why. He said, she is anointing me against the day of my burial. And so this feeling, this pressure, these forces, this atmosphere, the history being made and all history, human history, that literally is culminating up into these closing moments of that earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And it would be the axiomatic point of all human history that after Calvary, everything would go from it, even our calendars. This, at this moment, this pressure is doing this to this woman, and she doesn't even know why. And he said, I'll make sure the world hears about this, ma'am. There was another man there by the name of Judas Iscariot. And he's about to have his own defining moment. Because it's from that moment that he made his way to the high priest and began his process of selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And you cannot say the name Judas Iscariot, but what? That's what you think of. That's what the world thinks of. It's, 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 it's a metaphor. He's a Judas. Everybody knows what that means. And we know that Judas was a preacher. We know that God used him to heal the sick. We know he was a treasurer for that early IE church. We know he didn't do right. But his defining moment is not based on the messages he preached or anything else. It just it was the culmination of that act. And Jesus said, because of that act, you know, really, it'd been better if you'd never been born. So I'm talking about defining moments here of the kingdom. Uh I think an intriguing character is David. Uh, I wrote a couple of books about him. <laughs> and, and please um, understand where I'm I've, I've done a few, just a few, uh, radio interviews about the book. And the only reason I mention that, and it, they've been, I think, only four. It's not like it's a big deal, but... And they were radio stations around the nation. And uh, it was interesting to me, 
Now, I, did, I was offered to do some television interviews, literally, literally, two of them. And I, said, I turned them down. I said, no, I'm not interested. They said, don't you understand? I said, I said, there's a lot of people that would really enjoy me being on television. And, um, but I said, I'm, I'm going to refrain. I won't, be, I won't be doing that. And I just didn't want to make a bunch of people happy. But anyhow, uh, but in the, in the interviews, it's, it was interesting to me because I was interviewed um, both by secular people and by those who were religious. And it was, it, was, it was interesting that the religious people wanted to know about this and that. The secular people wanted to know, how did you deal with Bathsheba? Because where they were, where they were in their interest of David was... David and Bathsheba. Whereas those that were of religious persuasion asking me the questions, they wanted to know everything from Goliath down. So it was like there's two paradigms at work, and depending on where people's lives were, they looked at David's life as two different defining moments. You follow me? Well... What's important is how God defined David. And ultimately, that's all that matters for any of us, is how God defines it. That's what matters. That's what matters. That's what matters. <laughs> and we, we, have a, we have an insight into David's passing, but there's a lot we don't know. It's like Mark Twain's biographical sketch. Who knows what was going on in David's mind? There's a lot to be said about people whose lives flash before them, before they die. And there's been so many instances of people that had that, uh, but didn't die, that apparently it's, it's true. So you, you wonder what all, what, all, what all did go through David's mind as he was old, come into the place he was all but immobile but his God and his thoughts and his memories what did flash before his eyes what, what territory of the expanse of his life was covered in his, his mind's eye as he laid there day after day did he think about lions and bears did he think about the kid of the flocks did he think about Goliath? Did he think about the days, especially the early days, of what it was like to be in Saul's court? Did he think about the latter days of what it was like? Did he think about the first time he ever saw Michal, Saul's daughter, the first love of his life? And wife. Did he think about that valiant, mighty man, Uriah? Did he think about that? Did he think about Samuel, the last judge of Israel? Did he think about what it felt like for the oil to pour down over his head? 
as he knelt in the dirt. And that man anointed him. Did he think about the Ark of the Covenant and moving it to Jerusalem? Did he think about the ox cart? Did he think about the priest's shoulders? Did he think about his tabernacle? Did he think about linen ephods and dancing before the Lord with all of his might? Did he think, did he sing the 23rd Psalm over and over? Did he think about the day he got it? Did his mind think about Absalom? My son, my son. Did he think about Amnon? What all did he think about? We could go on and on. All of these were moments. But did he think about what it was be a 17-year-old boy in the valley of Elah, and two mighty armies pitched, immobilized for 40 days with a taunting, arrogant giant, and how the spirit of prophecy came on him, and he said, this day the whole world is going to know there's a God in Israel. And that was prophecy because we are now 30 centuries down the road. And you say, David, most people don't think David and Bathsheba. It's David and Goliath. It's David and Goliath. David and Goliath. And he brought him down. A defining moment. There's so much of his life to peel away. But when you get down, that boy never died. He never died. He got dry, and he needed resurrected. But it's how he went out that counted for everything. Can I, I'm going I'm I'm to talk to us about this church in the 21st century and how we need to go out of here. how we need to go out of here. So, just quickly, Moses, what went through your mind when you went up to the mount and you knew that God, you, you spied out the land you could not go to and you are there in Nebo and what did you think about? What went through your mind? Was it that Egyptian beating an Israeli. And you stepped forward and you intervened and your world changed. Did you think about your stint on the backside of a desert for 40 long years until one day you saw a bush on fire? What did you think about? Was it the water turning into blood or was it the death of the firstborn or was it the parting of the Red Sea was a Korah's rebellion. Was it Miriam's leprosy? What stood out? Or was it the times that God came and met with you face to face? 
And when those times would happen, everything else would fade because this was your defining moment. My God and my friend. And we could talk about Joseph. We could talk about Simon Peter. Was it the day you said, Thou art the Christ? Was it, you know, was it, was it when you heard the rooster crowing? Oh, wow. Wow. Did you ever wonder about how many mornings and how many years it took before he would be awoken by a rooster crowing and him not almost get physically sick? have to catch himself and stop and say that was that was past probably a rooster crowing took a long time before he could deal with that was it was it the morning you ran to the sepulcher and john stopped but there was nothing stopping you you may be older but you're sh you're more desperate what was your defining moment was it the day of pentecost was it people trying to get Bodies under your shadow in the streets of Jerusalem. Was it when Paul rebuked you to your face in front of God and everybody at Antioch? What was it? What was it? And we'll cut through the chase. We won't talk about Paul, we won't talk about Abraham. We won't talk about a lot of things. But I will tell you this. Nations have defining moments. Nations. Nations. And we know the history that goes into making a nation of any consequence. But there really was such a thing as Valley Forge. And they did suffer. Tremendously. And they hung around for a cause. And... As some did, many could have slithered off in the night and gone back home to maybe find warm beds and food. But they believed in what they were doing. And they believed in that man, George Washington, that was leading them. It's pretty interesting. Well, anyway, defining moments. Was it Lincoln at Gettysburg, a defining moment at a crucible time in American history when he would make sense out of a 600,000 man slaughter. Do you understand that they lost more people? This nation lost more people in the Civil War than the War of 1812, the Revolutionary War, the Mexican War, amen, World War I and World War II and the Korean War and the Vietnam War together. And in that moment, when broken hearts and homes in north and south, confusion and mayhem, nobody able to make sense, this man said, four score and seven years ago, there was a nation brought out with the concept that all men are created equal. And we're now met on a great battlefield to decide whether that nation or any nation so conceived and dedicated can make it. 
And he goes on. Or his second inaugural. When he said, maybe this God decided that every drop of blood that had been drawn from a slave's back by the whip and every bit of money saved would now be spent on this war as payment due for the offense that came. Fences must come, but woe to the world because of offenses. The Almighty has his own purposes. And I'm just going to make this statement. This isn't prophecy. To those that say America's institutions are too strong for it to get mayhemic and crazy, go back a hundred years. Duh. 150 years ago, this nation was clawing at each other's throats. And can I tell you, the quality of people were better then than they are today. But there is a church in the earth and there is a church in this nation and there are people that I've met and I believe are in this house that are willing to say this will be by the grace of God our greatest hour ever the world may be going to Hades in a handbasket but this church is not going down Somebody's going to live for God and we've made up our mind we're part of that number. And come what may by the grace of God this will be our greatest hour. I'm very, very close to being done. Winston Churchill stood in the House of Commons. He stood up the 18th of June, 1940 at 3.49 p.m. He spoke for 36 minutes. He'd been Prime Minister of Great Britain, and the word great was very shaky at that moment, for one month. He got behind the mic, and he looked at the house, and I won't give it all to you, but he said, General Wagan is called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. And he said, upon this battle, and he wasn't giving himself to hyperbole, he knew history, and he knew Hitler before, Europe knew Hitler. He'd warned them for 10 years and nobody would listen. But he said, upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our British life. He goes down, the whole fury and might of the enemy will very soon be turned upon us. Hitler knows he has to break this island or lose the war.
If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward. He said, if we fail, if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, can I tell you, there's more writing on us today than we can even begin to realize. There is more writing on your consecration, sir. There is more writing on your godliness, ma'am. Young person, there is more writing on you. There are an innumerable company of angels round about, and there's more writing on this one God church than we can possibly imagine. Churchill understood about this one nation continent, nations around the world. He said, if we fail, the whole world, including the United States, including all that we've known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister, perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to do our duties. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. I'm just telling you, I believe this one God, Jesus' name, apostolic church, of which we're just a part of, around this world, is, and I'm, my weakest avenue, venue of my life is eschatology. Let's stand. No. <laughs> we, will, we, we will have musicians come. So we're part of a great church that's throughout this world. I'm, I got some news for you. Not everybody's selling out this gospel. Not everybody's walking away from this truth. Not everybody wants the world. Not everybody wants, amen, to be like the world. Not everybody wants to look like the world. Not everybody wants to live like the world. There are people that have made up their mind for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. Keep standing. Musicians come. Eschatology is not my strong point. Amen. But I repeat, the greatest days of the church are not behind us. I believe with everything that's in me, they're ahead of us. And sometimes, it's not, if I can put it on this wise, till your back's to the wall and the knife is to your throat. That there's a certain something that kicks in. 
and the Holy Ghost that says no not here it ain't happening here we've made up our mind we're living in a world the doors are coming off the hinges civil unrest in this nation and around the world is growing I'm not being ugly I'm not being a smart aleck this is not a political rally lack of confidence in governments plural is very weak it isn't just single offices it's senates and houses it's states it's 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 and i said all that to say this it goes back to what brother urshan said people are looking and they're searching because they're scared I am 62 when I was turning, when I was 59, I told the church many times, if God offered me a 40-40 plan and said, you can be 19 or 99, take your pick. Without question, I'd say, scooter up. 99. I wouldn't be a teenager again for nothing. I'm sorry. But at the same time, God placed us in our time frame, just like teenagers, he's placed you in your time frame. And you will bring to the table stuff that God's putting in you right now. You can be as great as Daniel. You can be as great as David. You can be as great as John Mark. You say John Mark had his problems. Yes, and God saw it. And that's why God put Paul in his life. That all but took his head off. But then he put Barnabas in his life to sew his head back on. And then he put Simon Peter in his life to tell him, You thought Paul was bad? Let me tell you about when Jesus called me Satan and turned his back on me. It took all of those men to make John Mark. Brother Parker, it took Ice Terry. And it's taken Vaughn Morton. And it's taken a lot of people. There's nobody on this platform. There's nobody out here. We've got fingerprints all over us. And young people, God loves you. That's why he brought you into the kingdom. That's why you're still here. That's why you're baptized in Jesus' name. That's why you've got the Holy Ghost. The greatest days of the church are ahead of us. And this will be by God's grace, our greatest hour. What's happening? I don't know. How's it going to play itself out? I don't know. What's it going to do? I don't know. What's going to happen next? Don't ask me. But I'll tell you this. Those, those, those boys that Brother Parker called out. Come here, boys. 
right now. Come right here. look bigger next to Brother Parker. I'm going to tell you, and these, these guys aren't boys either. These are men. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus brought you here for this hour. And Jesus is going to walk with you. And Jesus is going to work through you. And Jesus is going to raise you up. And Jesus is going to hear your prayer. And Jesus is going to use your hands and your feet, your eyes and your ears. The greatest days of the church are ahead of us. And, and I'm done. God only knows the defining moments of what God's going to do in your world. And the defining moment, son, in your world and yours and you, little man. Don't forget this day, Bubba. Jesus loves you. And he wants to use you. And there's nobody in this house he doesn't want to use. And I don't know how it's all going to unfold and what God's got planned in eternity. But might it be something that down through eternity, I don't know, he says, and this man on such and such a day said, did thus and so in a defining moment. But I know this, we have to take care of this moment and the next moment as best we can raise ourselves by the grace of God to the moments he has in store. So here is a moment when once again this altar's open. This is a moment just to step out and say, Jesus, I want you to use me. I don't know what all you've got planned in our world or in my life, but I want you to use me. Come on, sir. Come on, ma'am. Come on, mama. Come on, daddy. That's it, young man. That's it, young lady. Come on, little boy. Come on, little girl. God's hands on you, too.